as we enter into the Christmas season, you need to know something about pastors. There's, there's a difficulty that comes in, in, in Christmas time. You see the story, especially as we serve in a, in a southern community, a very churched community, uh, the story is familiar. We've heard it. The wise men, the shepherds, the journey to Bethlehem, the full and the manger, the angels, the baby. We have all heard the story. I believe we need to pray for forgiveness because our wonder and our astonishment has really, it, it, it dims. We hear the story, we kind of go on autopilot, don't we? And pastors struggle. This is one more year, one more year, 25, 26, 27 years in ministry. And I guess in December we'll talk about Jesus being born. And we run to the familiar passages and we tell the story. And, and unfortunately, there's a temptation of pastors to come up with new ways of teaching the same old story. Unfortunately, this is where people really can get into the weeds, trying to find new and novel ways to speak about the incarnation, God becoming man, and not just becoming man, but being born as a baby in the crudest of conditions for us. We do tend to go on autopilot this time of year, and we listen in comfort. (laughs) And again, God forgive us. We think about our shopping lists. We think about family menus. We get distracted. But I want you to imagine with me for just a, a few minutes this morning. Imagine that we have gathered together in this small fishing village, Capernaum. And a visiting rabbi has come this morning. A teacher that we don't know. He's come. He's come into our midst. And so it is our custom to show the visitor and to allow him to speak, show him hospitality and to allow him to speak. And this is what happens. Look with me at the text. It's in your bulletin. I also encourage you to, to open your Bible. Uh, you'll find it on page, what is that, 836 in your pew Bibles. As we spend time in the Word together. This is what happens as we gather together in this little synagogue in Capernaum. And they, remember who we're talking about here, we said Simon and Andrew from last week, who met up with Jesus, as did James and John, maybe a few others, Verse 21, it says, They came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, remember that word immediately, Mark's going to use it over 40 times in this gospel. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they, that is all those who were gathered there, they were astonished at his teaching. For he, Jesus, taught them as one who had authority, and not as one of the scribes. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this text. Forgive us, Lord God. For how often we can hear your word and yet fail to consider your word. Fail to be amazed and astonished by your word. Father, I pray that it would not be of the pastor or of the men and women of this room, but of your Holy Spirit, that you would astonish us with your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's where we are on the Sabbath. There's this visiting teacher, and he's brought with him a few friends. Now, the friends that he's brought with him are not students that you would traditionally find walking along in the dust of their rabbi. These were men who have spent their lives not in study, but in hard, hard work, at rough hands, torn 
from working with nets, sunburnt faces, and, and, and for all their efforts, they just can't seem to rid themselves of that smell of fish. These are the men that have walked in with Jesus, with this teacher. Now, there's some rumblings about this teacher that has come into this little small synagogue in this little small village. This, this teacher, they say he's from Nazareth. <laughs> you shake your head and you wonder, has, has anything, any good ever come out of Nazareth? And so you do listen. You listen to the message as he stands up, as he reads, as he sits down and begins to explain what's going on. But your expectations are set low. They're set low because of the standard teaching for us regular routine every Sunday morning pastors tended to fall into a, a, a standard of teaching in that day. Recitations of the writings of others who've gone before. So you listen. You listen to this new teacher and you're amazed. Now the word that Mark chooses to use as he describes what happens here. He says, they were astonished at the teaching. You, in that church, that synagogue in Capernaum, are astonished. But there's, there's more than that. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, that there's an art to translation, that translation is interpretation, that translation is the opportunity for, for those who study the word, and study the nuances of the language to make the word come alive. And when you think about that word astonished, it literally means to be knocked with a blow. Knocked out of your own self-possession is what it means. That you sitting in there in comfort are hit by the Spirit of God knocking you out of that place of comfort and that place where you were unsettled. You are astonished by what you hear. You've been sitting expecting the usual and the words of Jesus explode and your comfort is expelled by the teaching of this, this visiting rabbi and his strange students. Now, before we look at why this happens, before we look at, at why and, and what makes Jesus' proclamation of the Word of God so astonishing, I want to ask you a, a very personal question. I've been here two months now. It's time to really get personal. When's the last time that you were astonished as you heard the Word of God? prayed several times today that the abundance of God's blessing would not take away the wonder of God's blessing. That the abundance of God's favor and mercy would not cause us to become complacent and comfortable in it. But that we each day would be astonished. The fact that, that, that we are in a tradition that is faithful to open the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to discuss the Word of God, to pray the Word of God, that we would share the Word of God, that, that the Word is there. We would not be like so many churches that would read a verse just because we're supposed to and then slam the Bible shut and then talk about whatever you want to. That is, that's not our tradition. That's not who we are. But when is the last time? that you were truly astonished, not by maybe a fancy phrase or a colorful illustration that the pastor might bring to the text, but by the voice of Jesus. Why aren't you, if you're not? If you are, and regularly are, let me know. I'll let you preach next Sunday. But I believe we all struggle with this. And so... 
we, we need to do a little bit of examination and, and ask ourselves now, not only as we read the red letters in some chapters and to be astonished by those as the words that are recorded of Jesus speaking, but realizing that all Scripture is inspired by God, the black words and the red words. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed and profitable for instruction, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is God's Word. From Genesis to Revelation... Does it astonish us? Are we amazed? Are we not out of self-possession? So let's prayerfully consider, how is it that Jesus speaks? How is it that the Word of God speaks? What would you have heard sitting in that synagogue in Capernaum? What would you have heard that would have unsettled and knocked you out of that comfortable seat into a place of asking, who is this? And what is this he is teaching? I've given you a a little uh, acronym, uh, Savior. If you think about the teaching of Jesus, that ought to be our focus, Savior. Uh, And and using that, I want to present six six points. I believe that that God's Word clearly teaches us about God's Word, about what Jesus would have spoken there in the presence of of the, the congregation there in Capernaum. But as every time we open it, what we see in God's Word... We begin by looking at the, our Savior's astonishing proclamation. The S, the S in the way that the Word teaches, the way that Jesus would have taught, is, is certainly first and foremost with a salvation focus. A salvation focus. Jesus' first and last goal was not that the listeners would have their best life now. It was not that the listeners would, would have healthy, wealthy lives with well-behaved kids and be clean-cut and wear the right clothes, and say the right things in the right way, and live in the right houses. That was not the intent of Jesus. It was not to correct behavior and leave hearts untouched. That was, that, that's not the, the way that the astonishing teaching of the Word of God goes. It aimed at the transformation. Transformation of men and women from the inside out. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus points out this. He says that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So we need to understand that as we read Scripture, we need to see that it does come about. If it does not produce transformation and salvation, then then we're missing the point. uh, I think we do, men and women, uh, injustice as we go forward to evangelize the world. Uh, to speak to the world uh, about the truth of Scripture, is that we, we, we seek to, to impose the do's and the don'ts of Scripture without speaking of the is of Scripture. That is, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, the new things have come. We need to look first at the issue that salvation is first and foremost. Last week, we, we heard the message uh, from Mark 1.15. It says that Jesus went around and preached, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. A simple statement of the life transformation, the heart transformation that had to take place. And this is where he pressed people. What authority, what power. Not saying, all these other rabbis are saying, you need to live this way, so go and live this way, and all will be well. Jesus is saying, you need to repent. You need to believe. You need to know God's forgiveness. We can't read, we can't study, we can't preach, we can't teach, we can't share, we can't explain, we can't consider, we can't meditate upon God's Word without focusing on Christ and His salvation. Now, Jesus, 
in the gospel, in the Old Testament, remember as he's walking along to Emmaus, and he speaks with Cleopas and his friends, and he goes back and he talks about Moses, and he talks about uh, the prophets, he talks about all these things. He says this, this was all in anticipation of the Savior having to come and die. It all speaks about me, Jesus says. Now, Jesus is not a leprechaun hiding behind leaves in the, in the gospel. Now, hear me carefully. We don't need to look and, and, and find him hidden in, in the sections allegorically saying, well, well, this rock is him or he's, you know, in this leaf over here. That's not the way it's done. It is that the entirety of Scripture is pointing to our need for a Savior and the fact that only in Jesus Christ is that salvation found. He is the one back in Genesis chapter 3 that was the one, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. No other seed would do so. We cannot crush the head of the serpent. All Scripture, all Scripture as we read God's Word, God breathes, points us to Christ and to salvation. Let's not be distracted from that. That's the key component, the first component we find in our Savior's astonishing proclamation, His teaching. But what else? It says right here in the text that Jesus' teaching was with authority. With authority, was authoritative. Jesus doesn't appeal, as he teaches here, uh, to the reputations of others to confirm what he says. The standard teaching in that day would have been something like this. A rabbi would have stood in front of the congregation, and they would have said something like, well, the school of Shammai says one should not kill a louse on the Sabbath, but the school of Hillel would permit it. It would be interpretations of what is good, what is not good, what is permitted, what is not. It would have been a recitation of the teaching of reputed scholars and other rabbis. But Jesus taught not as the scribes, as the way Mark describes it. The people were astonished. They were knocked off their comfort. For he taught not as one who taught like the scribes, but as one having authority. Now, that is not to say that, that Jesus was, was coming about with something new, was coming about with something different, but what he was doing is he was coming about and appealing to the Word of God as the living Word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Most assuredly, I say to you, until the heavens and the earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will pass away until all the law is fulfilled. Jesus was coming and proclaiming things on his own authority, as the living Word of God, preaching the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 5, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, there's actually five times that Jesus would use the phrase, you have heard it said. You have heard it said, meaning that this is something that people are talking about, things that people are saying, you have heard it said, and then it would be followed by some sort of popular misrepresentation. Uh, He would talk about a limited understanding of murder, Uh, lust, divorce, retaliation, these types of things. And then Jesus would say, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I'm saying to you. I I love that when he says, but but I say to you. One of my favorite Greek phrases. I just got to throw it out there. You remember the old commercial about the breakfast food, the the waffles, right? And and what would you say if somebody tried to get your waffle? Lego my ego, right? (laughs) Uh, the, 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 uh, the Greek phrase there, and this is just hopefully something to remember, but I say to you, when Jesus says that, but I say to you. His own authority, that's what he's saying. And the Greek phrase there is ego de lego. <laughs> Instead of lego my ego, it's ego de lego. I, and you'll remember that now, won't you? The gospel, God's word, does not need to appeal to any other authority to stand. It stands on its own. 
Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, then it's not the gospel that you believe, it's yourself. It's this idea that the gospel doesn't need to appeal even to our own preferences and tastes. The gospel is the gospel. And when Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority and not appealing to taste, preferences, culture, or even other teachers. So salvation-focused, it's authoritative. I wanted to talk about the truth, the truth of God's Word. It's not only authoritative, but it's truth. So let's talk about the veracity of Scripture, the veracity of God's Word. In Jesus' own prayer in John chapter 17, He says this, Sanctify them, praying for His disciples, praying for us. Sanctify them by the truth, for your word is truth. The Bible is true. God's word is true, whether the world would deny it or not. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, All your words are true. Now, we've just emerged from a political season, and I think we all can breathe a sigh of relief. Although, you know, it always seems to be political season with a 24-hour news cycle and everybody always wanted to comment on everything that's going on. But particularly in the midst of the campaigns, in the midst of debates, in the midst of arguing back and forth whether the candidates be presidential or or local congress or local councils or whoever it was, what, what you would find is every word would be scrutinized. Every word that's been uttered, every accusation that's been made, Every assessment that's been given was scrutinized, and there'd be fact-checking, and folks would have their truthometers, and all media channels would be filled with analysis. Were the words that were just spoken true? They would ask. The answer that you find a lot of times when some talking head would come on the news, and they were asked, was that true? What just got said, was it true? And their, their response would be something like, well, technically, yeah. Right? And I say no, but if they affirmed it, they would usually couch it. They would qualify it. We need to understand that as Jesus spoke, he didn't couch or qualify or limit what he was saying. That it is truth. And we make no apologies for it. That as we preach the Word of God, we speak the truth, right? Paul tells the Ephesians and tells us by implication, we speak the truth, but how do we speak it? We speak it in love. We speak it in love. We speak the truth because we know that the truth is the power to save. The truth is the power to transform. The truth is God's Word. We don't need to qualify it or limit it. We put it out there and say, this is God's Word. It is true. There's power in truth. There's strength in truth. So we look at at Jesus as he teaches, as God's word teaches us, as we look to examine on why are we not astonished when we hear it. And and we think about that, yes, we need to to look for the salvation focus in it. We need to hear it as authoritative, not appealing uh, to others' authority or even our own taste, that it is truthful, that there is a veracity to it. But also we need to see that Jesus, I love this, his teaching frequently used illustrations. That may seem out of place, but, but understand this way. There's, there's no denying that Jesus was masterful in His use of illustrations and sermons and stories. He painted vivid pictures in what He was saying. The parables. He would use parables again and again, right? And parables, that's, that's a combination of two words that have been put together. The word parable itself literally means to cast alongside. It means to throw this alongside. It'd be if I was trying to, to talk to you about uh, the forgiveness of God and how that forgiveness ought to change our lives and make us to be forgiving as we prayed earlier. 
And the way Jesus would teach that is He would then toss a story alongside. The story He would cast alongside would be something like this. A a servant has been forgiven hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, an unpayable debt, and goes and shakes down another servant for just a few dollars. He tells a vivid story to illustrate it. Why is this important? Why is this significant? Why does that make Jesus' teaching astonishing? Why does that make God's word astonishing? Well, they, they make a point. They're lasting, vivid images of truth. The prodigal son, the sheep and the goats, the rich man who kept building bigger and bigger barns until the Lord said, you fool, do you not know that your life would be expected of you today? Vivid, lasting images of God's truth. What he does, in, even in the bread and the wine and the sacrament, is, is he makes it accessible to us. It's not so separated from us that it's not applicable to our lives. It's not couched in theological Greek and Hebrew words that, that are only accessible by a scholar, by a professor, by somebody who has spent their whole life studying the ancient text. That God's Word is understandable by us today. I like the way one theologian talked about this and talking about the idea of, of God's Word. That it's inexhaustible, but it's accessible. And he said it's like a river. The river of God's Word is such that even the smallest among us can go and wade in the edges of it and get wet and enjoy and experience what it is to be in the water. But in the midst of it, in the very center of this great river, an elephant may drown. It's this idea that we will never exhaust God's Word, but it is not so separated from us that we can't understand it. And what Jesus did, if I might put things in a simple way, is He put the cookies on the bottom shelf so we can get to them. And that's important as we teach God's Word, as we live God's Word, as we listen to God's Word. We need to thank Him say, Lord God, not only is this astonishing that it is, it is eternally transforming and saving and amazing, but You have made it accessible to me. This simple kid from Alabama. We ought to be astonished at the vivid pictures that we might go and we might, we might read a, a story in the Old Testament of, of a man who pursues his wife, who, who chases her around the world to bring her home because he loved her even though she was engaging in wicked behavior. And Hosea would say, come home with me. A vivid picture of our Heavenly Father who pursues us, who brings us home and loves us. Of a Heavenly Father who waits for that prodigal son to embrace him and to celebrate. God helps us to understand these things. How astonishing is that? But what else? What else do we see? That God's Word is not only salvation-focused, it's not only authoritative, meaning that it, it doesn't appeal to Uh, somebody else to give it authority and power, that it's truthful, that there's veracity to it, that it's illustrated in a way that we access it, but also that it it is organized, it's orderly. There is a consistent and orderly structure to God's Word. If you think about how amazing it is that the 66 books of the Bible written across the thousands of years by the dozens and dozens of authors that wrote it, that it would, there would be an organization and a consistency to it. Oh my goodness, if, if just the men and women of this room, just half of us, maybe just the elders of this church were to sit down and to seek to pen something like this in, in different rooms but in the same day, how disjoint and crazy would the writings be? 
as we each approached it in our own way. But over the millennia that God's Word would unfold in a perfect and an organized way, Jesus taught that way. He went back and He said, do you see? Moses said it, right? Moses said it. What else? What else? We read read over here. Isaiah promised it. It all works together. It all comes together. We don't have to make up systems to make it fit. It's all there. It is an organized, it is a systematic way. Now, today's theological landscape is littered with popular teachings that are new and they're novel approaches to looking at issues in biblical interpretation. And and I want you to be on the guard of this, that there, there are many teachers out there that will pick one small aspect of theology and they will make that their absolute focus to the exclusion of all others. But if we don't see it within the framework of all of Scripture, then it's very easy to really get out in the weeds. Novelty and new variations of old errors, they thrive in the unorganized and unstructured thought. Our thoughts must always be measured by the whole of God's Word. You see, Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture speaks to Scripture. And when we find Scripture that might be unclear, we find verses that don't seem to make sense, and we really struggle with with what they're saying, we, we need to go and look and see what the clear clearly teaches. We let the clear help us to understand the difficult. And sometimes, sometimes we, uh, Peter talks about this in referring to, to what Paul had to say. He says sometimes uh, what Paul had to say was difficult. And he says, and there are wicked people who will distort that for their own purposes. So we need to understand that, that there are difficult passages of Scripture. And sometimes we can get focused on some particular elements and not looking at the power. But what Jesus does is he looks at the whole. He presents the organization of God's Word as it is unfolded throughout all the pages of Scripture. So salvation-focused, authoritative, veracity that there was truth in what he said. So he illustrated it so that we can access it. It was organized. It was part of the whole of God's teaching. But God's word is so relevant that what Jesus had to say is relevant. The common cry to so many pastors is, would you make this relevant? What does this have to do with me today? It's, it's kind of like the, the cry of the student taking algebra, saying, how will I ever use this in my life? Is it, is it relevant? Yes, God's word is relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. It is relevant. It speaks to us today. What we need to do is to look at it and understand what it's saying there. We do need to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. We need to take the cultural context of, of what might have been said 2,000 years ago and talk about what that means today. But God speaks to us in the way that we need to hear. And Jesus very particularly spoke to people in the way that they could understood. He knew his audience. But let me bring one other point of relevance. The relevance is not necessarily found in the illustrations that you would use, though illustrations are good. Relevance is not necessarily found in the words that you would use. But I think the greatest relevance that we see in the teaching of Jesus is this, the perfect consistency between his words and his actions. That as he would speak about loving your neighbor, that he would be the one that would take a break in the midst of the teaching to heal the man that was lowered in the midst of the house and use that as an opportunity to teach others to tell that boy his sins are forgiven and that he might take up his cot and leave. That he would spend time dwelling with that woman, that Samaritan woman at the well 
though others would look and say, why? That he would pause as he was, he was entering the city and see this, this tax collector, this small little man climbed up in a tree, just aching to see Jesus, and he'd say, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. And everybody say, why? Because Zacchaeus needed to hear the gospel. He needed to know that salvation-focused, authoritative teaching of Jesus. Those who listened to Jesus that day were literally dumbfounded. There's amazement and wonder that filled their mind. We need to pray that God would amaze us. Mark's narrative continues. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And all were amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands that even unclean spirits, and they must obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is a brief display, a simple encounter of the power of this world as it must submit to the power of God. We see our Savior's astonishing power. The terrifying truth, it was terrifying to uh, the, the demon there. The demon knew who he was, though the others in the synagogue didn't know who this Jesus was. The demon not only called him by name, but expressed the truth which held that demon in constant terror. He cried out and he says, You are the Holy One of God. This is a truth that ought to astonish. It terrifies the demons. They believe and they tremble, James tells us. But we ought to know and be astonished and rejoice. We see Jesus' irresistible command in that moment. The demon could not refuse. Jesus insisted not only that the demon would leave the man, but he would cease his utterances. Told the demon to literally be muzzled. The reality of who Jesus was would not be perverted for demonic purposes. The boasting of the demon, I know who you are. Jesus called it to be silenced. It would not be used to establish the authority of the demon in the house of God. When Jesus said, be silent... It literally means hold your peace or to wrap the muzzle of an animal so that it would open no more. And then he tells him to come out. No argument, no debate. The loving ministry of Jesus to this tormented man. Understand the demon, what the demon do? Convulse the man through the man of the ground. There's no love of that demon for that man. Great love. We've got to be astonished at how great that love is. How great that love is for us. How great the love is for Jesus and this man. And what do we see? An amazed reaction. The people are, are so astonished at what they see. Now, Mark uses a different word. We talked about being unsettled, being knocked. That word for amazement before. This is more of an emotional sense. Even the implication of fear. That they see this manifestation of power. We saw the authority. We see the power of Jesus. And there is this, this holy trembling in the presence and the power of God. Authority right there in their presence. Like Isaiah before the throne, or the disciples as they were in the boat, and Jesus caused the storm to be muzzled there on the stormy sea of Galilee. And what happened? Friends, hear this. Make it your prayer that this would be our reaction. 
This would be our reaction as we are astonished. As God increases our astonishment for His Word, we see that the, the Word went forth. What does it say? At once His fame spread everywhere. How? The people were talking about it. The people were telling others about it. The people were going about saying, you would not believe what I heard. You would not believe what I saw. But by the power of the Spirit, many did come to believe His fame spread. I ask you this morning, are you astonished by the Word of God? Not by maybe a phrase that your pastor might use from time to time. Not the words of your pastor, but the the words of God. Years from now, the name Brandon Bowman, the names of us in this room might be names at the bottom of a window somewhere, but the Word of God endures. And let it be our legacy that we understand the astonishing authority of God's Word. How amazing it is to hear our Savior speak and have access to that each and every day. And may the fame of our Savior rapidly increase. May it go everywhere in this surrounding region. Are you making the astonishing Word of God known? Make it your prayer. Lord, astonish me. And and, and may I let others know how amazing is your Word. Particularly this season, as we tell the story of God come to us, Emmanuel. Pray with me. Almighty and glorious, our gracious God, we thank you for this, your word. Father, forgive us for not being amazed. But Lord, as we humbly draw near, as we hear the voice of Jesus, may your spirit testify with our spirit that this is true, that this is real, that this is the power by which we are saved. And Father, we pray that we would be blessed to be a part of the process by which your fame spreads throughout this region and even around the world. Not because we find new ways to say old things, but because your word is eternal and lasting. It is the power of salvation to those who believe. Father, may there be a great an amazing revival. And would you begin with us? We thank you and we praise you in the name of the one who speaks, not as the scribes, but as having authority, our Savior Jesus. Amen.